thank you very much. What a great privilege it is to come and minister and fellowship with you this morning. We had a wonderful time with your pastor a couple of weeks ago at the Master's Seminary. Thank you for your part in his life and allowing him to drive up and minister to us. The response was overwhelming by our students as they were touched by the ministry of the Word by Pastor James. And I just enjoyed it a great deal. And of course, you know the word alumni is the word Latin, something we don't really realize what it means, do we? It's a Latin word that means foster child. And I must say to you that that's the way we look at alumni at the Master Seminary. After three or four years, whatever it takes for them to go through, we, we become very attached. And so to have some of our alumni, our foster children, come back and minister to us in our chapel is always a great privilege. And Pastor James came and ministered wonderfully to us. We were so enriched by his time with us. Thank you for letting him do that. And also another word of thanks to your leadership, to your church for your involvement in the lives of some of our seminary students. I know you have three or four or five of them that are a part of your ministry here. Thank you for your investment in their lives. That is, that is so important because there are, it is so often that churches look only to see what they can get out of a young man rather than what they can get put into that young man. And so uh, I do thank you for your investment in the lives of these men because these men will go and pastor other churches and they will take what you have laid here as a foundation for their ministry and they'll take it off, take it over, over to other ministries and will minister there as well. So thank you very much for that. <clears throat> and of course, thank you for letting us come and be a part of your fellowship this morning. Turn in your Bibles with me, please, to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. The majesty of God's grace. The majesty of God's grace. As the little introductory paragraph intimates in your uh, church bulletin, your church uh, paper there, familiarity generally will generate Apathy. Think about it for a moment. Whatever you have in great abundance, no matter how, much, how important it is, how valuable it is, if you have a lot of it, you treat it as commonplace. Uh, there's a bumper sticker that we see sometimes around here in Southern California that maybe will highlight this very thing. It says, Ho-hum. Just another beautiful day in paradise. Now, some of you who have lived elsewhere and moved here because you needed to, maybe don't think this is so much paradise, but uh, usually in January and February when the rest of the world is scooping snow, we are over here in our shirt sleeves just enjoying another beautiful day. But we take it for granted. If you've been married for a long time, my wife and I have been married for 35 years, it's easy to begin to take the most precious thing that you have and take it for granted. Familiarity generates apathy. When it comes to the study of the Bible, I believe no book of the Bible suffers from this more than the book 
of Psalms. Which book of the Bible do you read the most? Now, I would suggest that it probably is the Psalms. When you only have a few moments of a day to go to the Word of God, which book do you go to? You go to the book of Psalms. But, how often have you stopped to sit down and study one of the Psalms? How many commentaries do you own on the book of Psalms? You know, we'll buy commentaries on Matthew and on Acts and Romans, maybe Isaiah, Genesis. But so often Psalms, the book of Psalms gets overlooked. I believe that is because when we come to the Psalms, there are so many rich pearls that are lying on top of the ground that even in the haste of a new day, we can reach down and grab a handful on the run to feed our soul. This morning, I would like for us to take a look at Psalm 8 and pulling out the shovel, dig beneath the surface. Because I think when we do, we will find that there are some incredibly, incredibly rich treasures that await us in this magnificent psalm. The majesty of God's grace. Now, one more thing before we get into the text itself. The psalms are poetry. Hebrew poetry. And so there's some differences between that and what we are used to in the English language. For example, there is no meter or rhyme when it comes to Hebrew poetry. There is rather a parallelism of thought. One thought will be parallel to the next thought. Or sometimes the one line will repeat or rephrase the next line. Occasionally it will be in contrast to the next line. Secondly, the Hebrew poetry that we see here in the book of Psalms is very pragmatic. Very pragmatic. The lofty things of God, theology in all of its greatness, comes right down to meet us where we're at. And it communicates so magnificently with any of us. The psalmist, for example, was rich and he was poor. He was loved and he was hated. He was persecuted and honored. He was angry and he was penitent. All of these things. And thus we find that we can identify with the psalmist because we feel some of those very same things. A third element here is that the model of devotion and communication, communion with God is seen here. The psalmist is heard speaking to God. And we are allowed to listen in. And when we do, we find out that he had some of the same joys and the same sorrows, the same struggles that we have. It's a little like reading David's diary. Now, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever read somebody else's diary? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty private. That's confidential stuff. The psalmist, this is his diary, and we're allowed to read it and to listen in to what he has to say. Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise. And in this psalm, he reveals the majesty of God's grace. It's a powerful description of what God has done for you and for me and how undeserving we truly are. 
The things that he reveals here are absolutely incredible in many respects. Let's look at them. The first thing we see here in the chapter is verse 1, the majesty of God, the introductory theme. The majesty of God, the introductory theme. We know that this is the theme because you look at verse 9 and it says the same thing. It starts, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then we go down to verse 9 and we see him repeat it again. It is like bookends on this great chapter summarizing the contents of what is in between those two bookends. Within this introduction, the psalmist tells us two things about the majesty of God. Within the introduction, the psalmist tells us two things about the majesty of God. First of all, he gives us the titles of majesty. The titles of majesty. He says there, O Lord, our Lord. Now, if you will look closely at your Bible, you will notice that while they are spelled the same, they are written differently. The one has all capital letters, the other is not. That is because in the Hebrew they are two different words. The first one is, O Lord, all capital letters, and that is the Hebrew word Yahweh, or what some Bibles uh, historically, as historically at least, have translated Jehovah. It's Yahweh. And this is a title of character. Who God is. This is the intimate name for God. The personal name. Archaeology has been with us uh, in earnest at least for the last 100 to 150 years. Yet in all the work that they have done throughout all of the Middle East, they've never found another nation that had this name for their God. Only Israel had this name. The word Yahweh means eternal existence, eternal presence. Eternal existence, eternal presence. Always is, always is there. In other words, he is saying, as long as I live, I will be with you. Now, this name is very, very significant. Turn back in your Bibles with me, please, to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. If you recall, in Genesis chapter 12, you have the Abrahamic covenant. The first three verses there tell us that God said to Abraham that he should leave and he should go off to this other nation and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and so on. And thee, all the, the families of the earth shall be blessed. When we come to chapter 15, there we have the ratification of this treaty, this agreement, this covenant. It's the ratification that we see in Chapter 15. Begin with verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be stranger in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Talking about the Egyptian uh, captivity. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. 
As for you, you shall go to your father in peace, fathers in peace. You will be buried at an old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now, verse 17. It came about when the sun had set, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which, peace, which passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. You can stop there. You see what's going on here? In those days, when any two men would make an agreement or a treaty with one another, they did it differently than we would do today. They don't go off and have a notary public sign a particular document. They don't go to a lawyer and have him draw it up so it's absolutely perfect. But rather, they would take a, piece, a sacrifice and they would cut it in two and they would separate the pieces build a fire under them, and while the smoke was going up from the burning pieces of the sacrifice, the two men would walk between the pieces of the sacrifice. And thereby they would say, as long as both of us are alive, this treaty, this covenant, this promise is in force. But as soon as one of us dies, this agreement is null and void. The significance comes in verse 18. On that day, the Lord, capital letters, the one who always is and always is there, eternally existing, eternally present. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Only Abram was asleep. God walked between the pieces alone. As long as the Lord lives, this agreement, this treaty is in force. Turn further over to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Here we have the account of Moses and the burning bush. And God meets him there and says, I want you to go back to Egypt and lead my people out. And of course, you know the story where there are all sorts of excuses and so on. And you recall the account where Moses tried to do things under his own power and in his own way earlier. And so he had gotten driven out into the desert and so, in verse 10, Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. But Moses said to God, Who am I? Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And I'm sure he remembered 40 years earlier with what he had done. And they will say, they may say to me, what is his name? Who sent you? In other words, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. The word I am is the verb form of the noun or the proper noun, Yahweh. Always is, always is there. He's saying to Moses, tell them the one who exists eternally, and his, who's, who is eternally present. 
the one who walked between the smoking pieces of the sacrifice. He is the one. The one who made the covenant with Abraham. He is the one. That was not lost on the Jewish people. When you go to the New Testament, we don't need to turn there, but when we go to the New Testament, you go to John chapter 8, verse 58. You come down to the end of that great chapter. And Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he had said because they immediately tried to stone him, saying he had blasphemed. They knew the connection. <clears throat> when you go to John chapter 18, there the, you have the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they've come to arrest him. And he asks the soldiers, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And you know what happened? They all fell over like dead men. And when they had finally revived, they asked him again, and he said that again. And they took him captive. I am. The one who lives eternally, eternal existence, eternal presence. Oh, eternally existing one. One who lives forever. It's the covenant name for God. The intimate name for God. The title of His character. Who God is. The one who makes a promise and keeps it. The second one, O Lord, our Lord, you will notice, has a capital L and then lowercase o-r-d. This is Adonai. This is a title of position. Who, excuse me, what God is. He is master. He is ruler. It denotes His kingliness, His royalty, His right to rule. Who God is, what God does. Title of character, title of position. In a true poetic Hebrew poetry way, the psalmist grabs on those two things and he runs them right down through the chapter. They play a significant role in the unveiling of the meaning of the text. Because these are the two things that the psalmist focuses on. Who God is and what God does. And then he turns to man and he says, Who is man and what is man to be doing? So he takes those two things and he focuses on those as we go through the chapter. The second thing that we learn here in this introductory theme is the extent of majesty. How majestic is your name in all the earth. In other words, your majesty is displayed everywhere in the earth. The word majesty here comes from the word to be swollen, to be f full, uh, not puffed up in a sense, but not in terms of pride, but in the sense of overflowing. There's so much of it. It has the idea of superior power and greatness. Greatness compared to everything else. I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and he, the cherubim are crying out, Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of His glory. 
The psalmist then goes on to say two things about this majesty. Two things about it. The first, he says this majesty is revealed through great proclamation. It is revealed through a great proclamation. Chapter 1 Excuse me, chapter 8, verse 1, the last part of verse 1 and verse 2. There is a great proclamation. And he begins here by focusing on the loftiness of the heavens. Who has displayed your splendor above the heavens. The Hebrew expression here denotes loftiness again. The greatness beyond comparison. His majesty is superior to the universe. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 8 tells us His glory is even beyond the heavens and the firmament. Loftiness of the heavens to verse 2, the lowliness of infants. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Notice the contrast here. This is Hebrew poetry. One line contrasts with the other. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes. You see, the glory of God can be seen even in the youngest of children. The Hebrew word here speaks of a child under the age of three. speaks of a child before he has been weaned. Established strength by the children. He has established a bulwark, a strong foundation, a strong support. Instinctively, in creation, God declares His majesty so greatly that it can be seen even in the youngest of children. In Matthew chapter 21, when Jesus was coming into the eastern gate, riding in, triumphal entry, the Pharisees cry out at him because the youngsters were crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they cried out and said, you know, stop the children. Don't you know what they're saying? Jesus retorts and says, yes, but have you never read? And then he quotes this verse out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies. You've ordained strength for yourself so that the enemy and the revengeful cease. Even in that case, the most learned of his day, the Pharisees, were silenced by the words of the children. All of the so-called wisdom put to shame the wise ones of his day. It's a great proclamation. The loftiness of the heavens, the lowliness of infants. You come from the macro, the big picture, down to the micro, the little picture, the infants. Great contrast, both proclaiming the majesty of God's grace. But as great as those proclamations are, there is even a greater revelation of His majesty. And that comes in verses 3 through 8, the great reclamation, the great reclamation. Before we look specifically at these verses, again, I want you to just take 
note of how the psalmist has put them together in typical Hebrew poetry fashion. And so we become, we come first of all, to the structure and its comparisons. The structure of the psalm and its comparison. So may, uh, Hebrew poetry is made up of a series of parallel lines or contrasting lines. In verse 1, he goes from earth to heavens, contrasting. In verses 1 and 2, he goes from the heavens to humans. In verses 3 and 4, he goes again from heavens to humans. He tends to go back to the heavens and then to the humans. The heavens and then to humans again. In verse 1c, compare that with verse 3, you have him talking about the heavens. And so we have a parallelism there. Verse 2 compares with verses 4 through 8 where he's talking about humans. There you have parallel thoughts. He begins with the loftiness of God and the heavens. And then he moves to the lowliness of mankind. In fact, he spends more time talking about mankind than he does about the heavens. That is his emphasis. Why is that so? It is because, you see, God's splendor revealed in the heavens is absolutely magnificent. But his splendor revealed in his work of redemption, his work of re, uh, reconciliation and regeneration, that is far, far greater demonstration and revelation of his majesty than even the heavens can declare. And so that leads us to the next point, the question and its impact. The question and its impact. We see that great contrast in verse 4, but that is set up by verse 3. The question in verse 4 is set up by verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Notice here he has your fingers, your heavens. David is very emphatic here. Creation is a personal work of God. He did it. And it speaks of ownership as well. He owns it. He orchestrates all things. The universe is a vast place. But the one who created it is even greater because the cause is always greater than the effect. No matter how great the universe is, the glory of God is far above the glory of the heavens. Now, when he says, the work of your fingers, that's poetic imagery again. God is a spirit. God doesn't have fingers. But since fingers are used to make things, the psalmist here chooses to use fingers as an illustration to describe the creative work of God. It's anthropomorphic language. Describing God's work in human terms. Interesting, too, here, he mentions the moon and the stars, but he doesn't mention the sun. I think that is probably because he's focusing on the night. In the daytime, we see only one star, the sun. At night, we see thousands and thousands of stars. And so the intricacies of declaring God's greatness is much greater at night and thus he doesn't mention the sun at all. In light of the grandeur of the heavenly 
expanse, a universe of which we do not know the boundaries. How could a God who created a universe so infinite wherein the earth is just a speck of dust, how could this Creator possibly be interested in mankind? That is the question the psalmist gives to us in verse 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? It's beyond what he could even think. The psalmist describes this question with two very interesting words for man in verse 4. He begins there by saying, what is man? That first one. The word there is Enosh. Enosh. We first come across that name in Genesis chapter 4, at the very tail end of the chapter. You recall the accounts. Chapters 1 and 2, God created the earth. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve fell and they were driven from the garden. And so in chapter 4, it says that Adam and Eve had a child. They named him Cain. Cain means gotten one. Because, she said, I have gotten a man, and then our text usually adds the word with the help of or from. It's not there in the Hebrew. I've gotten a man, the Lord. I really think that Eve thought she had given birth to the Messiah that was promised in Genesis 3, verse 15. Then they had another son, and they named him Abel. You know what Abel means? Vanity. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Breath. Vapor. By the time they gave birth to their second son, they realized that their first son was not the promised Messiah. Life was full of vanity. We're here so short and then we're gone. And of course, the account through that chapter goes on to talk about how Cain and Abel were in the field and Cain rose up and murdered his brother Abel and so on. And you come down to the end of the chapter It says that Adam and Eve had a third son. They named him Seth. Seth means appointed one because the Lord has appointed one to take the place of Abel. Then Seth had a son. Seth's son was named Enosh. And then at the very tail end, the last verse of the chapter, The last phrase of the chapter, it says, they named him Enosh, and then it says, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Almost like, what's that doing there? You know what it's doing there? Because the name Enosh means incurably sick. Incurably sick. By the time Adam and Eve had a grandchild, they realized that they were incurably sick. That what God had said in the Garden of Eden, in the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. They suddenly realized the truth of it. Incurably sick. There's one other passage that I'm sure many of you know well. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. The word there is enosh. Enosh. 
incurably sick. The second name. And the son of man. There the word is Adam. Adama. Word for ground. The word ground comes from the word Adam. Born of dust. Son of dust. And the son of dust. That you care for him. Dust you are and to dust you shall return. One born of the ground. You see the contrast here? When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is incurably sick man that you take thought of him? And one born of dirt that you care for him? Something that I continually do every time, though we don't get it very often anymore, any time that they send somebody out into space, occasionally they will still beam a picture back of Earth. And I don't know about you, but I suspect you do the same thing I do. I try to see if I can pick out a continent of that beautiful blue ball hanging in space. I generally cannot. But sometimes I can make out a little something and so I try to think, well, you know, wonder if that, where that is. So I, I begin to think, well, maybe that's North America. And I think, well, if that's North America, then right on that left-hand side, about the size of a parenthetical mark would be California. Real small. And then I think, on that parenthetical mark, maybe the size of a period is Los Angeles. And then I think, I'm on that little dot. I'm one of them. I'm one of the millions on that little dot. And then I go to the Scriptures and I read that says that He has the hairs of my head numbered. He knows my days when as yet there was not one of them. He knows when a sparrow falls out of the nest, Matthew 6 tells us. And I suddenly find myself with the psalmist saying, Who am I that you have thoughts of me? That you care for me? It brings us to verse 5. One of the greatest words in this entire chapter is the next word. Yet, yet, because you see, you and I are mankind. We are incurably sick. Yet, yet you have made him a little lower than God and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. This brings us to the, this great reclamation It's like a musical crescendo that's beginning to build toward the end. It's coming to the climax. This brings us to the dilemma and its resolution. The dilemma and its resolution. Because the dilemma is in verse 4. Who are we? We're incurably sick. We're born of dust. We're here maybe 70 years and if by reason of strength, 80 years. Yet, the resolution in verse 5, you've made Him a little lower than God. 
There the word God is Elohim, which is a generic name for deity in the Old Testament times. Other nations used it as well. They didn't have the, the ability to have a capital G to refer to the true God or a small g to refer to a false God. It was just Elohim. When we go to Hebrews chapter 2, we see this passage quoted, and there it's the Greek word is angels, made them a little lower than angels. But regardless of what is intended here by the psalmist, the point is very clear. The point is very clear. Man has been given a tremendous position by God. Evolutionists tell us that man is merely an evolved animal, but that's not the case. That is not the case. We're created in the image of God, Genesis 1 tells us. In the image of God, we have been created. Man is worth infinitely more than the stars. Man is the most complex composition in all of God's creation. In comparison to other created things, man is a very, very small thing. Yet he is the crown of God's creation. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Image of God. When our boys were younger, we often went camping. And our favorite place was in the Sequoias. We had a special place there called Lodgepole. Maybe some of you have camped there as well. We loved it. And we would try to camp near the back. We're close to some of the waterfalls. And we would have a glorious time. But each time we would go, no matter how often we went, usually every summer, we would always make a trek to see General Sherman tree. The big one. General Grant and General Sherman. Sherman was closer. We would go there. And we would always park our car and go for a walk amongst all the big ones. And then we would stop at the General Sherman tree and we would uh, pause and begin to look up. And then we would read the sign in front that would tell us, you know, that this tree was probably 30 feet tall when Christ walked the earth. And the trunk is, I don't know how many, 25, 30, 35 feet in diameter, something like that. And then the sign would say something else. It would say that the first branch, and the first branch was 60, 70, 80 feet up, You'd look up and you'd see the first branch and they would say that the first branch is about seven or eight feet in diameter. And invariably, whenever that happened, I would always back away a little bit lest the branch would want to come down on me. I was amazed, but I would always feel so small. There would be one that was chopped off and laying down and they had little tags on it to tell you what events in human history occurred because they had counted the rings. And suddenly I felt very small in the sight of this big tree. Yet, yet you've made him a little lower than the angels. In spite of our smallness, in spite of our short time on earth, in spite of the fact that we were incurably sick, in spite of the fact that we are born of dust and will turn back to dust, in spite of all of that, yet you've made him a little lower than God and you've crowned him with glory and majesty. The word majesty there is a different word than is in verse 1. 
This word that literally means honor. Glory and honor. And interestingly, there, you've made him a little, a little lower than God. With glory and honor, you have crowned him. The psalmist in the Hebrew puts it right up front. It's emphatic. With glory and honor. It's incredible. The word for crown here doesn't speak of something inherited, but something bestowed. It's a gift. It's not something that we have by right. It is a gift. What is man that you have done so much for him? That takes us to verse 6. This is proof of verse 5. You've made him rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. You see, God made man to be a co-ruler with him. You go back to Genesis. He says, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the heavens. Man was created to be a co-ruler with God. It was God's work, but He gave it to man to rule over. That's the proof of verse 5, the evidence of its reality. Notice the progression of thought in verse 7. Sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heaven, fish of the sea. Uh, you go there from domesticated beasts to wild beasts to birds to fish. And then less, maybe he's forgotten something. He says, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. In creation, God put all things under man's rule to subdue it, to have dominion over it. But the question still remains, is that what we see to be true today? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, please. Because here the writer to the Hebrews quotes this passage. Chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For he did not... For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him and the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little while lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor, have pointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. And of course, then we come to that last phrase in verse 8. Because the question is, is that what we see today? But now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. Rulership has not yet been realized. You see, in between, man sinned. Man's intended destiny suddenly now became derailed, restricted by Adam's sin. Man would no longer rule over creation. Instead, in many respects, the creation rules over him. By the sweat of your brow, you will bring forth food. Man plants, but he's unsure if it will yield or not. You see, man lost his kingdom, his right to rule. He lost it to a usurper. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The animal kingdom coming out of 
Noah's Ark, the animal kingdom, was subservient to man out of fear, no longer out of affection. God put the fear of man on animals when they came out of the ark. Everything now is in an unwilling subjection. But it will not always be so. Someday, dominion will be given back to man. Man's original destiny will be restored. Verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 2. But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. You see, the first Adam lost the right to rule. The second Adam, using the terminology from the Apostle Paul out of Romans, the second Adam gained it back. Jesus Christ came and He died paying the penalty so that man might once again rule as God intended. He bought our dominion. He bought our place of rulership. He bought it back from the evil one. The curse has been removed in Christ. We've not inherited our dominion yet, but our position spiritually has been restored. In a sense, we could look at it similar to when David was crowned as king. You recall how he was crowned and yet he had to run for his life and it was years before he actually was allowed to rule. Yes, God has bought back our place spiritually. And someday... We will rule with Him. Our dominion will come in the millennium. And that is spoken about in Revelation chapter 5. Turn with me there, please. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Revelation chapter 5, beginning with verse 9. There we have the account of the book with the seven seals. They were concerned because no one was worthy to open the book. And they were weeping. And then one of the elders said, Stop weeping. Behold, the line from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Verse 5 tells us. So we go down to verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures, 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And now here it is, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Verse 10. And you have made them, the ones that were purchased in verse 9, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. There it is. The full cycle. All the way from the first Adam where our right to rulership was lost to Christ coming and dying for us and paying the penalty redeeming us and in turn coming back 
and restoring our right to rule with Him. Allowing us to rule with Him. And that, of course, takes us to the very last verse of Psalm 8. After all of that, the psalmist has built to the crescendo and he comes and he realizes who he is and what God has done and so he cries out the way he began, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's like the Hallelujah Course. It's irrepressible euphoria. The majesty of God. Charles Wesley, many years ago, wrote a hymn, I believe, that encapsulates the essence of this psalm. It's a song that you know well. Let me just read the first verse. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who Him to death pursued? Amazing love! How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we would echo the words of the psalmist, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You truly are worthy. We would echo the words of Charles Wesley, for he too shares that same euphoria. Amazing love, how can it be that You should die for me? We give You thanks. I do pray that the words of this psalm would reverberate through our hearts and minds and be on our lips, in our thoughts, every waking day of our lives, knowing that we owe it all to You, for You have done so much for us. And thus we cry out with thanksgiving in our hearts, in praise and adoration of Your name in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.